When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sir Jim Radcliffe has officially completed his purchase of a minority stake in Manchester United. We'll be hearing directly from the brilliant Henry Winter about the deal, as well as a potential move for Dan Ashworth. We'll also be looking ahead to Saturday's meeting with Fulham and answering your questions. You know what it is. It's the latest episode of your Stradicast. Following official confirmation yesterday evening, supporters around the globe rejoiced with news that Sir Jim Radcliffe has completed his purchase of 27.7% ownership of Manchester United. Now, the deal is going to enable him to take control of football operations at the club with the prospect of a return to normality for the world's biggest football team. Now, as such, we feel it necessary today to share time with an individual who has supplied leading coverage since the news first broke all the way back in November 2022. We are delighted to welcome the Chief Football Writer for the Times Sport, Mr Henry Winter. Henry, an absolute pleasure to chat with you today. How's everything? Uh, yeah, it's very good. I'm particularly pleased for you for the, uh, the news that broke last night. But to be honest, only when the Glazers have gone, I think, will there be true celebrations. Agreed. And, and keeping on that topic, and just to begin, just how significant is yesterday's news about the arrival of Sir Jim Radcliffe and his Ineos powerhouse? I think the momentum was there. You could see at recent matches, I was at Luton at the weekend, and Sir Dave Brailsford was there leaning forward and, and focusing closely on the issues that are clearly in the team whether in defence, whether in midfield. The attack looks pretty good at the moment. I mean, Marcus Rashford probably needs to sort himself out a little bit. Garnacho with uh, with some of his final balls. But you look at Rasmus Hoyland and the form that he's been in. So I like to think that everything leads back to the pitch, but it isn't always with Manchester United. It occasionally leads over to the Everglades. And I just think this is wonderful. I'm, I'm not a Manchester United fan, but the moment the Glazers came in, I thought these are not the sort of owners we want in English football of any club. And particularly, as you say, you know, well, the biggest club in the country and along with Real Madrid, the biggest club in the world. So, uh, yeah, it's it's great news. I like Ineos. I like, I mean, leaving aside sort of some of the uh, the eco stuff, I just think they, are, they look like they're good owners. And for me, the most interesting development over the last two, three days is the, the pursuit of Dan Ashworth, because I think, I mean, he helped me write a books once. I've interviewed him down the years. I've had arguments with him. I've had a, you know, coffees with him. And he's the type of person in terms of elite performance culture that Manchester United should be pursuing. And sticking with Dan Ashworth, obviously the desire to join the club is huge. But amid the beginning of this would-be rebuild at the club, do you consider the fees that are being reported to force his arrival and sort of eradicate any gardening leave? Are, are they potentially dangerous for the new owners in the club and moving forward? I think they're potentially a little bit exaggerated. I mean, okay. I can understand why people who maybe not used to... Uh, I've got to be careful. I'm being very respectful of my colleagues. But I think if you look... I mean, this is... Everyone's looking at this through a football prism and everything in football is emotional, it's a circus, it's high profile. But if you take a step back and you look at actually what's going on, it's one very big business uh, recruiting um, an executive from a slightly smaller business. This goes on in all walks of industry. I mean, when I left the Telegraph to to go to the Times, I mean, there certainly wasn't the, you know, I mean, I got put on gardening leave, but it's a fairly straightforward contractual situation. So I don't know what the figure is going to be, but I would be surprised if some of the, the, the uh, except, you know, it's not going to be um, Anthony territory in terms of uh, the, uh, the, the, the fee 
I think it will be. I mean, I, I don't know, but I'd be surprised if it's much more than 10 million because it's not actually in Newcastle's United's interest. Remember, they do sit around the same table at the Premier League. They're supposedly, particularly at the moment, with the sort of debate about the new deal for football and broadcast rights, you know, they've, they've actually got more in common than against each other. So it's not in their interest to argue. Plus, also, it's difficult for them to appoint someone else if effectively their sporting director is sitting in his garden twiddling his thumbs. They can't go and raid whoever they want to raid. So it will be sorted out. It always does. The lawyers will get together in a cold way and sort it out. A compensation will be will be paid. And I'm guessing 10 million, whatever, um, which is probably what just about twice what um, Newcastle United paid Brighton and he'd been there a year longer. So that will all be factored in and then everyone will move on. It's, it's testament to Manchester United, Henry, and the global appeal of every tidbit of inf information that can be found about the club gets magnified so much that the fee for an executive position is being discussed in a similar sense to what the fee for a player will be discussed. Yeah, um, uh, well, to an extent, it's a reflection on the fact that Dan Ashworth is highly regarded. This is the world we're, we're moving into now. Chief executives move for, for big sums. I suppose they've always been well paid. But a sporting director, when you think of what Ashworth is coming in to do, so first we start with the point that biggest club in the country and the club of all the elite clubs, Manchester United is the one that maybe leaving aside Chelsea with their stadium, but Manchester United is the club that basically needs a new stadium built on Old Trafford. It needs, element. I mean, I went, Ten Hag showed me elements of the, the training ground, the bits that have been improved. And Cristiano Ronaldo in that interview still made one or two salient points as he went in a huff out the building. You know, part of, it, it is that training ground needs doing up. So look, there are elements there. But it's also about performance culture, which is what Ineos uh, traditionally have been very focused on. Brailsford's been very focused on. Ashworth's been very focused on from going back to West Brom through his time at the FA. I mean, I can remember it seems like yesterday when the England DNA came out and I had one or two issues in the sort of the slight management speak and corporate speak and almost like Bain McKinsey management consultant speak and the way it was written. But actually, if you look back through it, it's the roots of why England's the senior team and the age group teams, and this is really important, and Manchester United fans will, and you will, will sort of appreciate this in terms of the impact it's going to have on Manchester United going forward, is that he wanted an identity. And I think Manchester United, has anyone seen them over the last 10 years post Sir Alex, it's all been about searching for this identity or refining their old identity. And I think what Ashworth does and why there are so many headlines and why there is so much sort of focus on the compensation is that he will come in. It's not simply about recruitment. It's not simply about bringing in players. That will be an element of his job. And look, he's he's good at that. His track record shows that. His database. I mean, I sat with him once at lunch when I was writing a book on England. And he had this database of just players from all over. And this I, it has slightly amused me, this idea that Newcastle are going to get into a huff because he's going to be ta taking state secrets from them. Now, OK, so he's going to maybe know one or two of their targets in the in the summer, but different clubs have different targets for different positions. But actually, most people know the good young players coming through. So Ineos have their own footballing data bank because of their association with Nice. So he'll now have access to that. So, OK, so he will come in and the recruitment will be important. But it will be the other things. It will be the whole performance culture that everyone is best in class, every appointment. And you'll see people leaving and, and new talented people coming in. And it's also about the players who are already there getting rid of some of them. You probably have got a list of them that you could recite to me of players who who need to leave the club whether they're aging whether they're not good enough whether their their discipline and sort of tactical qualities and input doesn't reflect what the manager ten Hag wants but it's all about excellence and i think ashworth will absolutely bring that in 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 many many areas of uh, of Carrington and that's why there is such a focus on him at the moment. Henry, you mentioned culture and recruiting players and it's, it's, it's a big thing that a lot of our listeners talk about is we're not signing the right players and, and they want to see that addressed with the right recruitment team in place. There has been reports for some time that 
Radcliffe and that would like kind of the culture of English players, more English players signed in the future. Now, there's been a few of those reported. Um, how important do you think Ashford will find that, that Manchester United has, you know, some of the best players that play for England playing for the club? Because if you look at some of our players now, a lot of them aren't getting into the England national team. Yeah, I think it's a good time to be Kobe Mainu. I think it's a good time to be anyone who works at Manchester United's academy because Ashworth's background has been in developing uh, young players for the England age group system. And and little things, we talk about the pursuit of excellence. He will go back and he will work with the under nines onwards to make sure they've got the best coaches, the best conditions, the best facilities. It's all about this pursuit of uh, excellence. The academy does so much good work Anyway, I mean, when you've got someone like Tony Whelan embedded in the system, you know they're going to have good values, good work ethic, good principles. And it's just maybe just about assisting that. But I think in terms of recruitment, coming back to your point, it's not simply about buying talent. It's also about buying character. If you, I mean, Harry Kane was never going to go to Manchester United because Levy was never going to sell to a rival. But you need players of... Kane's character. Declan Rice would have been perfect because he's a character, because you see what he's doing with Manchester United. I'm out in Porto at the moment. Declan Rice will be really important tonight. You know, he's he's a leader. It's about buying the right characters. And Ashworth is huge on that. He doesn't have much ego himself, but he's very shrewd. He'll go into a building, he'll listen. He will then, when he talks to uh, potential signings, he'll do all his due diligence on their character. Now, the one obvious blot in his copybook, as Newcastle United fans are rightly quick to point out, is Sandro Tonali. When the betting... um, I was actually in the room, at bizarrely, at the Italian embassy in London when his agent basically was making a speech and he started talking about Tonali and said, yeah, he's got a gambling problem. And go, oh, my God, this is slightly unexpected. I thought I was just in for some Ferrero Rocher and some nice chat. And then suddenly there was this sort of news bombshell that came out. So, look... Ashworth will have looked at himself, will have looked at the process, to use that horrible word, and thought, how could I have done this better? And that, you know, there will be mistakes. But the character, the way they look at individuals, character is absolutely huge in the teams that Ashworth developed. And, you know, I cover England pretty much all levels. And I, I saw them when they won the under-19s UEFA. I saw them when they won the under-21s. And that is part of his England DNA, part of his involvement with England, even though he's not been there since when did he leave, 2018, 2019. You know, the, that is a sort of legacy. And, I mean, just little things like... He got all the England age groups. When they played the opposition, say they played France in a friendly or France in a tournament, France in a qualifier at sort of under-17, under-19 level, they would have a penalty shootout at the end of the game. It would be agreed with the French Federation in advance. They would tell the fans, say they were like, I don't know, 500 fans in Auxerre or whatever, to stay on and create an atmosphere and try to put off the sort of the opposing players just to sort of develop these young players who can come through. Again, it's about character. It's about it's about having resilience. Your point about English players, yeah, I think they will. Uh, also, remember, English players are incredibly fashionable at the moment because you, you look at that England squad, you look at the quality of that. The, the only reason why I brought it up was I was at an event in September and Nemanja Vidic was speaking and he was saying about this current United team and he thought that it, it needed a greater core of English players, that he felt that when he was in the dressing room, they were the ones that Alex Ferguson could could lean on or, or lean into more so than, than some of the other foreign players that couldn't take it, like him, he admitted. Yeah, I mean, I, well, that's very interesting. I mean, Vidic speaks a, a, a lot of sense. Um, I, I think absolutely that. I mean, that was an exceptional generation. I know Giggs is Welsh, where they play for, I remember seeing him play for England schoolboys. I mean, the, yeah, but that, that was exceptional, that generation. I think now, particularly since the points deduction for Everton and the board of the Premier League changing and having what I would call non-football people, more corporate regulation, legal people involved, we are going to see PSR, Profit and Sustainability Rules, be clamped down on more. Everton have found out, even if they may have a reduction to their 10 points, Forest will find it, Manchester City sometime in the next couple of decades, they'll they'll find it as well. So, you know, it, assuming that, you know, if they are found guilty, they deny all charges, but that process has still to be played out. So 
I think what will happen at the end of that, because of PSR, is that clubs will look into their academy, realise how important homegrown players. And when we talk about homegrown players, you can have dual, triple nationality players, eligibility, you know, just because they come out of an English... I, mean, I, was, I went to see Ted and, Ted and Mengi the other day, who's playing for, for Luton, obviously came through your academy. He's qualified for Angola and DR Congo, as well as England. And, you know, he grew up in, um, well, he grew up on the edge of Manchester. So you've got, but those sort of players who are coming through the system through academies, they are worth their weight in gold in terms of PSR. So again, coming back to the academy element, I think there'll be an element of that. It's a good time to be a young English player coming through. I just want to touch on something there, because obviously we've spoken about Dan Ashworth, we've spoken about Dave Brailsford, and we're analysing marginal gains, best in class set up for the first team down to the academy. And that's been widely publicised. But something that's also been widely publicised, and I feel it, it bears a significant factor with the stature that the club holds despite the damage that's been caused, the speed and the attempted acquisition of backroom personnel. Just how significant do you think that's been, particularly from rival clubs? Well, I think it's brilliant. I mean, it just shows the um, they mean business. I mean, Ratcliffe and Brailsford are not the type to hang around. They want to crack on with things. And I think that's great just because you've had this dead weight anchor of the Glazers for, was it, when did they come in, 2005? I mean, it's just brilliant that you've got these people who are you know, involved in the football operation, who have gone in, seen all the issues very quickly, very clear eyed. I mean, Ratcliffe's obviously had his eye on Manchester United, obviously as a fan, but also as as a businessman and a potential owner. So why should he hang around? Also, if people are going to be get put on gardening leave for a short period, better get get better get acting soon. So no, I like the uh, thing. Also, you want people in place early this summer so that they can really attack the transfer market and get Ten Hag, that, you know, the players in midfield, probably another forward, central midfielder, defenders, cover left back, players like that. In Ratcliffe's announcement today, or his statement, should I say more so, he speaks about accelerating the target objectives, which will start from today. So I wonder, is that a hint towards the likes of the Ashcroft or the Ashford, um pursuit and and the other pursuits of people he wants to put in place or or world world class best in class acquisitions in the background i'd imagine judging by sir jim's ethos and mindset so far that he's shown and the way he's spoken about the club or the what we're led to believe he's been saying about the club he's very much into getting the things done right now but look at his career i mean i don't know how much he's worth absolutely you know tens of billions. I, I I don't know. I mean, you know, he's done amazingly, but he hasn't done it by sitting at home, you know, watching reruns of Match of the Day and just sort of going for long walks in the country. He's someone who absolutely cracks on with life, cracks on with his career. And, and it's great for Manchester United to have someone in the football department who's absolutely driving it through. You haven't really had someone like that since David Gill. David Gill, when he left, was that even though he used to give me some of the best bollockings, you know, I am here in Leafy, wherever it was, Cheshire, reading the Telegraph as I was at the time. And you've said this about Manchester United. I mean, his bollockings were absolutely brilliant because, he, you know, he stood up and he fought for the club and he drove through the football operation, obviously alongside Sir Alex, and he would get things done. And you really missed that. And... Now you've got Jim Ratcliffe, who's not hanging around. This is what Manchester United should be. You know, you're on a, you've got this incredible name, incredible reputation, and even though you've been on the slide for ten years, you are still Manchester United. You're still huge. We only have to look at it to, you know, the number of, you know, the reaction to a piece of. I mean, I write about all clubs, EFL and and Premier League, but the reaction to a Manchester United piece is huge. Even if even when you're struggling, then that might be opposing fans, Schadenfreude, enjoying it, whatever. But you are Manchester United and it's good that you have got someone. You know, you should be ambitious and you've got an incredibly ambitious person. I still think you need to be free of the, the Glazers. I'm, I'm bored saying it. But maybe, you know, everyone's hoping the Glazers go soon. But the Glazers might look at the situation and think, right, we've got really strong people running the football operations now. We can carry on sweating the asset commercially. And do they necessarily need to leave? I hope they leave because I, I think they're an embarrassment to the club. 
partly because of the debt and partly because they have no interest in the heart and soul of Manchester United, which is people like Kath at the training ground, which is the people in the in the tunnel wishing the players well as they walk onto the pitch at Old Trafford, which is the fans. I mean, when have you ever had any communication from the, the Glazers? I mean, I, I've only had one. It, it was fairly dismissive. So, uh, you know. I, I, was, I was going to ask Henry, sorry, the closest you or one of your colleagues got to interviewing or getting a question across to one of the Glazers because I'm, plenty have tried. Yeah, I mean, I had a sort of slight run in with them at Wigan. Some of your fans will remember the incident. I mean, it was just, they were just just disgraceful their behavior the arrogance towards fans and when you saw that close up you thought right that is the mark of these people they're not they're not custodians they're here for the money and look fair enough they're businessmen make money but do it you know they could actually well i mean they're going to make billions but you know just do it with a bit of class do it with a bit of respect um, I mean, look, you know, you probably don't want to hear this, but Liverpool owners have learnt from the European Super League, from the mis- mistakes they made over furloughing, from you know the mistakes they made over the ticket pricing, and look at them now. They've got a, they're a club like with a lowercase U. They're they're a club United. So you know, you look at, I mean, do Manchester United, do the Glazers ever get involved in the amazing community and foundation work that Manchester United do? You know, the work that you guys did in in COVID, the work that you've done consistently with schools that have been struggling, you know, obviously Marcus Rashford with his child food poverty campaign was fantastic. And in a way, to an extent, maybe slightly overshadowed the incredible work that the club do. I mean, if you go into the, the community foundation offices, on a match day, so like two hours before kickoff, all the returns are being, you know, the money is being generated for that. They're going around making more money. And they're not simply changing lives. They're saving lives in in schools and communities close to, I mean, everyone thinks of Manchester United, this global brand, which you are. But the work you do on the doorstep, you know, two, three miles, schools that need help, you know, um, I mean, it's 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 fantastic, but the Glazers never get involved in that. I mean, they probably don't. I'm sure they do know you've got a community department, but things like that, which for me are the heart and soul of Manchester United, doing good. Again, you know, you want you want best in class. Look at your foundation. Look at the you know, John. The, you know the work that he he does there. It's it's phenomenal. So yeah, coming back to the Glazers, I can't wait for them to go, but I don't think it's going to be imminent. I think one of the things that that's testament to the Glazers' lack of interest and lack of effort put into Manchester United is a lot of the stuff we're talking about with Ineos, Sir Jim, Brailsford, Dan coming in. A lot of it, if you look at it simply, is is very common sense. Put the best in class and position. Focus on sporting performance. None of it is groundbreaking scientific development. It's just basic common sense. Strangely enough, the Glazers didn't have any of that common sense through their whole tenure to show us exactly the lack of interest and motivation they had to be involved in the club as a football club as opposed to a business entity. But they'll still walk away with three billion. So they'll, they'll you know, they'll be they'll be laughing. I mean, I agree with you completely. I also think it's sad that if you if you are a sports fan and there's an element of them that is sports fan, when you look at their work in the United States or interest in the United States, actually, you know, you've got Manchester United, you know, you've got, you know, you own Manchester United. Obviously, the fans emotionally own it, but financially, contractually, the Glazers, well, they've got, what, 75% of it now. You know, just just enjoy it. Just go to games. It just really annoys me. I know they're the other side of the world, but go to games. And I think uh, Ratcliffe and Brailsford have have been very sort of high profile, particularly Brailsford going to matches. But things like Sir Jim Ratcliffe turning up for the, the Munich Memorial, I just thought he he handled himself well. He was respectful. You can see the relationship he's got with Sir Alex and, and, and David Gill. And, you know, the, the Glazers, anyway. Don't get me on the Glazers because I'll bore you for weeks. Something Brian is ever touching on, I think it stems back really to the heart and soul of football. Brian is talking about doing the simplistic things. And you go back to the great Johan Cruyff and how he had his philosophies in installing that sometimes the easiest thing to do is just do the simple things right. And ultimately, so many people deviate from that and they try to overcomplicate it. Given the simplicity of what they're trying to install on paper, anyhow, 
how do you envisage the landscape shifting over the next couple of weeks or months? Is, is it too early for supporters to get excited? Or given what you've said previously about the necessity to be able to act firmly and strongly in the summer transfer window, do you envisage much change in these coming weeks and months? I mean, you mentioned Johan Cruyff, and if you want the pursuit of excellence, he had it clearly on the pitch. You know, he's had the, the turn named after him. I mean, what, what an absolute genius of a player, Ballon d'Or's, European Cups. But off the pitch as well, his pursuit of you know, excellence tactically, the way he handled people. little thing when Manchester, I'm showing my age here, but when Manchester United played Barcelona, what was it, 94? Um, I'd arranged to sort of go over and see him. And the press officer at Barcelona was brilliant, said, yes, um, the coach will see you after the game. They're, I think they're playing down at Valencia. So I was sort of hanging around afterwards. And he did the Catalan press in Catalan. He did the Spanish press in Spanish. He did the Dutch press in Dutch. And then he looked around and said, right, where are the English? And it was just me and, and, and one of my colleagues. And he spoke to us for sort of two, three minutes. And I just thought, Again, pursuit of excellent, top, just just absolute class, fulfilling all his obligations, not forgetting anything. So, look, that was just a tiny thing on on Cruyff, um, and that pursuit of excellence is the type of. I mean, Jordi. I mean, Jordi Cruyff. You know, he's the legacy of his father. I was slightly surprised Manchester United didn't tap into that a little bit more, partly because obviously they knew him as a knew him as a player as well. Just that knowledge we can be quite blinkered in this country particularly when it comes to the role of a sporting director director of football what's needed in the training ground look things have have markedly improved from sir alex leaving the dressing room munching on sort of jaffa cakes and the players doing likewise it's it's so sophisticated now but yeah i think of a bit of the spirit of johan cruyff and you know the the, the majesty of Sir Alex's sort of personality, if that just seizes the Manchester United dressing room and seizes Carrington and seizes the club. And you, you almost get the impression already that with staff, they've been lifted by Sir Jim coming in. Like It's like a cloud has moved away from over Carrington and you've got this great, obviously the team doing well, and you know, the truth is always on the pitch and that sort of lifted thing and the young players. And don't underestimate the the importance of that picture of the three young players just sitting on the hoardings. I mean, everyone said, oh, they were sending out a message. It sent out a fantastic message about the future. Sticking on the topic of Johan Cruyff, obviously our manager came from Ajax and there's been quite a bit of talk <laughs> about him this, this season. What do you make of Eric Ten Hag as Manchester United manager? Total supporter, and if I can use the word total in an Ajax setting, I mean, he's, he's not, his football isn't quite total football. Um, I like him. I went to interview him at the end of last season. I found him very honest. We had, I find him in press conference a little bit static in a way. Um, I think his answers, not static, but staccato in some of his answers, and I think he comes over as slightly monochrome, was a really interesting character. I mean, he, he, he told a really just a kind of slightly funny joke against himself, which I won't repeat. But, but you know, we were just he was having a picture taken on the balcony by the players canteen at, at Carrington. And the uh, and the photographer was just sort of taking some pictures. And he just he, he was just so sort of relaxed and was funny. We had an interesting conversation about the sort of the, the, the con well, not contrasting, but the sort of similar colonial histories of uh, the Dutch, the Dutch East Indies Company. I was sort of boring him with my GCSE history and just sort of talking about that. And actually, uh, the point I was trying to make is that, that, you know, the Dutch have always been great explorers for a country of what, 10, 12 million people. My maths is terrible. You know, it's it's remarkable what they've achieved. Uh, historically, as well as from a sporting perspective and particularly football perspective. So I found him very interesting. But remember, he's not from Amsterdam. He hasn't got that innate confidence of, say, someone like a, a Cruyff. Um, but, but, you know, very interesting background. But actually, having said that about Cruyff, when he was a uh, and as a kid and a Dutch TV company came down and they had Cruyff going and coaching all the sort of teams in the country, like Farnord, Ajax, and um, Twente. And bizarrely, they were coached. He Cruyff coached uh, Twente on uh, headings, 
And then they all came back into the studio. So one player from each of these teams. And I think Ten Hag was about 15, 16 at the time. And he's quite interesting. I mean, he's, he's he obviously got sort of inbuilt confidence, even though Ten Hag's clearly not an extrovert. And he was asking Cruyff quite sort of tactical questions. Um, so, yeah, look, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of his. I can see what he's trying to do. I'm slightly not confused, but I, I don't quite think that he's imposed his own identity and uh, I'm not quite sure what a Manchester United team is completely at the moment. Clearly speed in transition. Um, but look, he was looking at Kobe Mainu in pre-season, uh, Garnacho as as well. He's given them his head. He's got the Marcus Rashford, and I'm a huge fan of Marcus Rashford, but he's got to sort out one or two issues and then blossom into the fabulous player that we know he can be. So, but Herland, I mean, his judgment was was good on there. I don't think Anthony will make it as a Manchester United player. I just don't see any signs of development. I think that's as much down to Anthony as as Ten Hag's coaching. Clearly, you need some more investment in the defence. I mean, Johnny Evans is wholehearted, but he's not quite the quite the future. Although I can see a role for Johnny Evans in the club in some capacity because he's got so much knowledge and wisdom and understanding of the club. So, look, there's a, there's a lot that needs to be done. But I, I, I like Ten Hag. I like that desire of discipline, um, which we saw with Sancho. I thought the way he handled, I mean, I was down at the Newport game. There was a debate about would Rashford uh, be involved. Uh, and then he was for the, was it the Molyneux game? And I was there for that. And I actually thought that was good management by by Ten Hag. I mean, it might be an element of practicality because he, he needs Rashford. And Rashford, I thought, you know, responded well. Just needs to keep responding every game. So I like what he's trying to do. Your club, and not simply on the pitch, but you need that discipline. And, you know, Ten Hag. And you can't keep changing managers, even when there was all that stuff in the headlines, you know, two, day, two games to change the job. And I was thinking... You know, okay, so I work for the time, so we're not sort of wanting to sort of drive managers out every week. But really, you know, Manchester United should be you've got you've got a very good manager. So just let him manage, let him build, give him another tra- transfer window. You know, he's got powerful people backing, but also they'll be watching him. And you know, he's he's got to deliver. He needs a strong end to the season as well. But yeah, for me, stick with Ten Hag. Now, we have to move on to this because when we advised our listeners that you'd be joining us today, there was obviously massive excitement for many to have their questions put to you. And with such, Henry, we've selected a few to put to you today, if that's all right. First up, all the way from Australia with a man called Adam Joseph. He's asking if you believe this is truly a new dawn at the club under Sir Jim Ratcliffe, or do you need to see more than these initial steps to believe in it? Well, you just want to see more and more but the direction of travel is is clearly upward everything he said everything you know about him his his impact his pursuits of excellence the ambition that you've touched on absolutely heading in a you know the same in the right direction i will get well i don't drink but i'll get the champagne out when the glazers go and i'll look at the bottle at least um yeah but heading absolutely heading in the right direction, partly because of the quality of the appointments. Question from Yes We Cantona on X. I'd like to hear your thoughts on the refurb or rebuild of Old Trafford and how that could benefit the local community. And um, there's been suggestions about cheaper tickets with local postcodes, like some clubs do, or maybe to balance the, the lo- local and global identity of the club. Or do you think that ship has sailed? Uh, no, I don't think it sailed. I th- I would like fans in the in the country to be a little bit more militant over ticket prices. It's very rare in in the tribal nature of English fandom that there is much unity. But I I, I think if you look at I mean I look at you know every club and their issues with with rising ticket prices. I had lunch with some Arsenal fans here today, and you know they're steaming over uh, the hike for next season. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, in terms of the stadium, look, Old Trafford is special. The memories there, but ultimately it's bricks and mortar, and it's it's a little bit like Goodison. You know, the Everton fans will move into Bramley. Um, more dock and the atmosphere 
you will be fantastic there because of the fans. It's like the Manchester United fans. Your your fans are remarkable. The noise around the ground, your way fans are amazing. And I've got this thing about, I mean, it's partly having been through COVID and having been to Old Trafford, how many times to sort of watch games behind closed doors. And it is brutal. And it's just a reminder of the importance of fans, match-going fans, and that is to do with ticket prices. That's to do with kickoff times. That's to do with the train companies actually running trains, you know, when they should do in this supposedly first world country. So absolutely, the fans have got to be uh, supportive. I mean, I'm the son of an architect who, when he was over in the uh, in, in the States, dad worked on um, Candlestick Park in, in San Francisco. Um, obviously, that was in the 60s, a long time ago. And so I've always looked at grounds and you need a new ground. You know, you talk about the ambition on the pitch, off the pitch. That's also got to be reflected at Old Trafford. Old Trafford is not fit for purpose now. I'm not talking about a few leaks on a few journalists' heads in the press box. But, you know, that's that's irrelevant. It, it's, it looks tired. I mean, Carrington's been updated a bit, but Old Trafford needs, you know, respectfully addressing because of the Munich tunnel, because of the statues, because of the memories, the shrines. And I don't know whether Old Trafford's one of the grounds where fans are allowed to um, scatter their uh, their um, uh, ashes of their loved ones on, on the pitch or behind the pitch. And that, again, has to be taken into uh, to account. But you've got so much land around. And obviously, it's an issue with the car parks. But if I got it right, is Old Trafford part of the England 2028 or whenever it is bid? I mean, I no, think... No, no. Well, there you go. So you've answered the question. So build a bigger stadium. Um, a question from my namesake, another Brian, Sligo Brian on Twitter asks, if Dan Ashworth should get stuck at Newcastle in a protracted negotiation on the compensation, is it expected to greatly impact United's potential summer recruitment or will it make a difference considering Euro 2024 usually brings a transfer logjam anyway? Well, that's a good point about the transfer logjam. Well, first, Dan's garden is going to be magnificent. Um, no, that'll get sorted out. It's in no one's interests for it not to be sorted out. I think there may be something written into his contract that he can't go for certain targets that Eddie Howe had specifically said he wants in the in the summer. But, I mean, he's got his own database. He's, you know, all these elite managers, coaches, sporting directors, directors of football, they all have access to often quite below the radar um, analytics company who will provide them. And I know one which provides information on the character, on the phone numbers, on the agents, on the family, on the personal peccadilloes of individual players in a, in, in a hundred leagues, you know, they would have gone off and scouted before the, uh, the sporting director, you know, even says, you know, this is what I want. So, yeah, I mean, I think that it'd be interesting to see your, I think there'll be obviously some very high profile exits in the uh, in the summer. And I was reading today that I think it was in the Telegraph, James Duck, who's very well connected, um, that there will be issues with FFP, PSR in, in the summer. But if you, you know, maybe sell one or two academy players you, you move on some of the big wage earners i think there'll be some pretty extensive action by manchester united in the transfer window so yeah encouraging times definitely staying on the tricky factor of money neil crowd has come true to us on facebook and he's very straightforward asked have you heard anything about how sir jim and ineos plan to manage the debt at the club it's a good point by neil yeah uh, absolutely. Well, it'd be nice if the Glazers actually addressed it, but they'll just sort of take the money off in their bulging saddlebags and ride off into the sunset eventually. I, that's a good question. I, I don't really know about the um, about the situation with the debt. I mean, I've always found it embarrassing. And I, I understood when they came in, the payment in kinds and the dividends they took out. But are you just thinking... I just pay off the debt. I know everyone there and then sort of their sympathizers, their cheerleaders say, well, haven't you got debt because you've got a mortgage? So, well, it's it's slightly different because I don't have the money to buy the house outright. The the Glazers could easily have covered that debt. I, I just find it embarrassing that 
the biggest club in the country or the top two clubs in the world is associated with debt, shouldn't be. And a question from Jonathan Khan. What does the future hold for Ten Hag under this new regime? Performance related. I think he has to go out and deliver and he would expect that of himself. I mean, this this idea that managers, you know, have a bad result and they go back home and they sort of have a nice evening with their family. They're absolutely eaten to bits by it, just, just as fans are. And so he's he's very, very, very driven. I, I wish he would you know, lighten up a little bit in his in his press conferences. Um I do find myself standing up for him um, you know, extensively and I think but obviously it's easier now because the, the team are doing so well and he should sort of celebrate that. I wish he would almost just take a player and, you know, after every game and say how great, I know sadly Luke Shaw's injured in the moment, but how brilliant it is to have Luke Shaw back. What an impact he is. And then just rave from a technical perspective why Kobe Mainu is so good at taking the ball, um, you know, in tight circumstances. Should he be playing for England? Why not? It's Southgate's choice, but wow, what a player he is. What a prospect. England are lucky to have him. I would like a little bit more sort of enthusiasm from him. But yeah, look, he's got a, he'll want to finish in the Champions League positions. I mean, it's interesting if, I mean, if Arsenal and Manchester City continue to progress in the Champions League, we probably will get, I mean, it's tight and Italy might pip us to it, but England, Premier League might get the fifth Champions League position. Uh, so the the English teams continue to do well and progress in Europe. That That's absolutely key. And then fifth, you know, if he finishes back in the in the Champions League, I think that'll be that's that's good. Given it's you know some difficulties early in the season, and there's there's more of a buzz around Manchester United around the team, and and clearly off the pitch with Ratcliffe coming in. Final question from David Briggs on Facebook, and it's it ties in nicely with the question of managers and success and what it looks like. He takes us back to Sir Alex Ferguson's time, and he says, if you had to boil it down to one specific thing. What, in your opinion, was a special something Sir Alex Ferguson had that made him so successful? Team talks. I mean, I, I, I helped Michael Carrick write his book and I found it absolutely fascinating. Well, it was all, everything was an education because Michael Carrick is, is, is a fascinating individual as an individual as well as a player. And he just talked about those team talks. Uh, whether it was obviously at half time, he's reacting to the first half, and sometimes there it would be a bit more anger, and he he knew he could pick on one or two, like a, a, a gigs or a skulls, because they had the strength. If he was trying to get a message through to the team generally, but he but beforehand, you know the. The team talks that he gave, often going back, you know, to the, his shipbuilding past, to the mining community, to the sacrifices that the players' parents had made, the coaches that had helped them early on, the teachers that had helped them early on, it was all down to sort of work ethic and respect and just delivering for other people as as well as yourself, and all those things like. What was it? There was one when geese fly in a formation, they take it in turns, you know, the two at the back go to the front and, and they sort of fly in that V formation. And that's all about the sort of, you know, the, the strength of how you fly um, and that teamwork. And apparently when they did it for the um, Ryder Cup, when it, and I think it was, I know about sort of 10, 15 years ago, Rory McIlroy was telling the story. He told it to Carrick because they're good mates. And apparently Ferguson went in and spoke to them. I think they were at the Belfry or, or one of the great British courses and, and spoke to them and just said, listen, you are all individuals, but now in the Ryder Cup, GB in Europe, you are, you're a team. And this is how you, you know, and he told them the sort of the geese analogy that you have the two at the back fly to the front. And then that sort of, it withstands the winds and then you all fight on together. And it's just about the, you know, the unity, the collectivity. And apparently when uh, they were collecting the Ryder Cup, um, they were on the sort of the 18th green, a formation of geese flew overhead. So that was why everyone said, well, you know, why is Mackerel and all the players Golf, the great golfers pointing to the sky and laughing, wondering whether it was, I know, Concord going over. And so that's all those things from Ferguson. He was, he was an absolute genius of that. And of all the 
people I've been privileged to manage in, wow, um, 35 odd years of doing this. Sir Alex is the one actually which is the most difficult because you look at his words and you think, what do you cut out? So 40 minutes with Sir Alex might give you six, 7,000 words. And then if you have to sort of reduce it, obviously, for, for space in a newspaper or now digitally, you go, what do I take out? I mean, JFK was probably the fastest talker. Sir Alex was up there, but but it was just so difficult to take anything out because he was making a because he spoke beautifully and every sentence was just beautifully joined up. And it was like sub clauses had just been lowered in beautifully into a sort of point he was making in an individual sentence. and. Yeah. So and, you know, and I'm just a journalist listening into him sort of talking about sort of tactics. So the players in the dressing room, when you've got someone like Sir Alex and that presence, that formidable presence. I mean, I only had the hair dry from him once. And that was, you know, my blood <laughs> absolutely ran cold. I'd written something or said something stupid. And I mean, he was quite right. But yeah, that's those people skills. And it's strange. People talk, well, would he be able to cope with the, you know, the powerful corporate younger player now in the age of social media? Sir Alex was one of the great adapters. He was also one of the great rotators of his coaches who he used to sort of get messages through. And Sir Alex would be as much a genius now as he as he was up until he resigned. It was it 2013 at West Brom. I think that was about as insightful and inspiring and about as good an evening as I could have spent. We thank you very much for your time. Fantastic to have you with us today. My pleasure and good luck with Sir Jim. Fantastic news. Why, hello there. You've made it this far, and you've had a few giggles along the way. But there is one more thing that we want you to do. you got to hit that subscribe button wherever you are listening right now. Let's be honest. You know yourself, your playlist is duller than a rainy night in Stoke. So why don't you let the boys from Streddycast put a smile on your face and a spring in your step? It's going to cost you nothing. And it's going to help us to make even more ridiculous content for you every single week. You know it. I had you at hello. So subscribe now and fall in love with the Strading Cast. For Hoyland to chase and Hoyland's through the middle. And Hoyland has scored properly. Six in a row. He's in form. And he looks like the real deal. It's taken him a good few months to settle down. But Rasmus Hoyland... He's really banging them in now, week in, week out, six games on the bounce. You've just heard the sounds of our golden Danish boy breaking the record for the youngest player to score in six consecutive Premier League outings. That was, of course, as Rasmus Hoyland Brace was enough to take all three points from Kenilworth Road in a 2-1 victory over Luton, with the side now knee-deep in preparations for Saturday's visit of Fulham. Lads, that makes it 13 points from a possible 15. And we have four consecutive wins, closing the gap on fourth place to five points. And despite the positive form and the nature of the points being accumulated, for many, the performances are still leaving a little bit too much to talk about. Ahead of Fulham, who have only won one of their previous five fixtures, by the way, what needs to be addressed? What do we need to see? I don't think we're going to see this fix that you're, I think you're asking us, can we get? Because... We all identified it a few weeks ago when Martinez picked up that injury and what a blow that was to this team. We've seen over a duration, maybe two or three games with him back in the team, how good this team can play with key personnel back. Martinez picked up the injury. Now we have Luke Shaw out injured. Another key player with how we play football. Um, So no, I'm not expecting great performances between now and the end of the season to be honest we're going to be grinding out results of anything and that's what we did again at the weekend we should have made life easy for ourselves to two 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 lead again conceding and kind of collapsing in terms of performance and finding you know wasting chances in that but look 
I think there's going to be a lot of that this season. We're, we're going to continue grinding out results. We're not going to be grabbing games by the scruff of the neck because we haven't got someone at the back that's able to stick the knife into teams. And we want to go forward quickly. You know, Martinez is excellent at that. Shaw was good at doing that. Probably going to have a debate soon about who fills in now because we don't know. Bearing that in mind, obviously, what you're touching on, there, there's, there's news breaking in the last hour from Chris Wheeler suggesting that the club is going to be without Luke Shaw at the weekend, as well as apparently for the majority of the season with a recurrence of that leg injury that he's had. Just how significant is this for the battle for a top four spot? It's huge. We, It's funny how it ties into what we've been speaking about the last few episodes because we've highlighted how important Luke Shaw and, as we just said, Martin, is that, that partnership on the left side of defence is something we were missing for such a long part of the season earlier which hindered us quite a bit we get it back together we just start to look a little bit settled form upturns performance improves although not being where we want it to be but again you're expecting that to come over time we lose Martinez and then we get a hammer blow of losing Shaw as well Shaw being lost is going to impact Rashford greatly you're now looking at shoehorning players into positions that they don't want to be in you're looking at essentially makeshift back fours, potentially sacrificing Dallow from right back to left back, but then who fills in at right back? Does Are we going to see left back Lindelof come back into play? If you're looking at Maguire and Varane in the centre-back partnership, like it's not, it's not the centre-back partnership you'd maybe want to be seeing. Um, it's, just, it, it's, a, it's a kick in the ball, to call it what it is. It's just a bit of a pain in the arse. We're after losing two key players out of four in the back line. It changes the dynamic of the team from playing out from the back. It changes how we build from the back for attacks. It changes the momentum of which we turn over and, and 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 try to go counter-attacking when we start getting the ball in defence. You're looking around and instead of seeing a Martinez knife pass through the centre of the pitch into Rasmus Highland's feet, you're going to see more of Maguire kind of passing left and right and Luke Shaw on the left being lost is a, is a massive blow. Reggion's gone back off on loan, or sorry, back from loan. Terminasia, although we're not quite sure what's exactly happened there, has been missing on the missing list for quite a long time. It's it's concerning, and I think Dale is pretty, pretty nail on the head there with that one, that the performances we're going to see for the rest of the season could be a bit haphazard. They could be a bit more similar to what we were seeing before Christmas when we had a massive injury problem albeit we're probably a bit more solid in front of the defence than we were back then. So I think all we can do is hope that we can batten down the hatches, battle through for the rest of the season, get to the transfer window. And I think, if anything, this if anything, this injury crisis that we've had this season has highlighted the frailties we have in the squad in, in cover, like our, our, our cover at left-back, our cover at centre-back. You know, it, it, it gives us a bit of a shopping list. It shows us what our homework is and where we need to address. So... It'll be interesting. Just on that, I think we are right back to where we were in terms of the defensive crisis earlier on this season. The difference elsewhere in the team is we appear now to be scoring goals. I know after Luton at the weekend, we missed a lot of chances, but you know, Hyden's goal-scoring run, Garnacho's picking up goals every every now and again, and, and Rashford, we're just hoping he can, can get a bit of a flurry under his belt. But another big difference too is having... Manu back in the side or in the side uh, and fit. Start of the season he wasn't there, and even some of his, some of his balls into to Highland have been have been a massive benefit. And we were complaining start of the year we weren't getting balls for didn't have Martinez didn't have Shaw. Um, just looking at, at silver linings right now, and I think the other thing that's going to help us as well, hopefully this weekend against Fulham is momentum. We definitely have momentum behind us right now. We didn't have that earlier on in the season. So, yeah, we're slipping back into that defensive injury crisis. And that really kind of must tell the manager um, and the powers that be in the summer that we need centre-backs. And not only centre-backs, we need full-backs on both sides. But despite all of this doom and gloom, gentlemen, a win could potentially see us draw level with Tottenham Hotspur on 47 points which would also potentially leave us only two points behind Aston Villa. I know it's been far from, let's say, joyous or overwhelming with what we've seen. But on the other side of things, you have to look at it. And when we can put together results after results, getting points, and as I said, earning 13 points from 15 games, 
is it possibly a very, very good omen to think when these points are coming through when we're not playing consistently on the field, just how much could the squad be capable of if and when it all clicks under Eric Ten Hag's dynamic? Or am I being too optimistic? No, I think you're dead right. I think we only we only mentioned it last episode that we're not, although we're a few players short, we're not a million miles away. And the English Premier League is an extremely, extremely competitive league. It has become so over the last decade. It's no longer a clear two or it was a clear top four. Now we talk about the top six and then they refer to the top eight. It's getting that way that the competitiveness in the league can show you that you string a run of five, six, seven results together. All of a sudden you're bouncing and you're well up the table and you're back in the mix for top fours or top twos or whatever. We're, we're not a million miles away. You know, I, I know we're getting a little bit excited and a little bit giddy after a couple of good results and a, a good start to 2024, but we're, we're still not that far off having a side that's capable of putting those results together consistently week after week after week. And if we can manage that, if we can bring in the summer, like the summer is huge, again, and I keep saying it, we are always entering the summer knowing we need four or five players. It's a huge summer. Every summer for Manchester United for the last decade has been, this is the big summer where we fix the problems and we have it all sorted for next season. Again, this summer is the big summer where we need to fix these problems and get it all right again for next season. If we finally manage to do that, because the jigsaws ha- the jigsaw pieces haven't fallen together for the last transfer windows. We've made signings that haven't been quite successful. We made some stupid signings, made some astute, clever signings that haven't turned out to be astute, clever signings. If we can just get it to work out one summer and retain the players that we need to retain, retain fitness and availability, there's a serious side in there dying to get out with a manager more than capable of getting it out of them. We just need those pieces to fall into place. I mean, we've heard from Henry Winter talking about, and, and we've heard from Ben Jacobs, we've heard from Duncan Dresdow talking about the background and the structure and everything that needs to fall into place behind that. That seems to be progressing ahead at, at pace. That seems to be coming together. So I think our our focus can slightly leave that as a fan and we can trust in the fact that, that we are creating the right ethos behind the scenes. We are bringing the right people in behind the scenes. Now it's time to start focused on get it right in the pitch. And I think it will fall into place. I think if we do bring in these best-in-class people into the right positions, it can only lead to better decisions being made, which will reflect in better players being brought in or better um, better signings being targeted to fit the profile we want for that position, which in turn gives the manager far more chess pieces to move around the board. I couldn't agree more. And we obviously hit another imperious milestone last week in breaking the duct and hitting a positive goal difference, which for me is the highlight of the season. But the funniest thing in all this, we're looking at a side that are apparently struggling for every which want and merit throughout the entire campaign after 25 games, when we're also hearing about the majesty of Liverpool, Manchester City and Arsenal. They've only won three more games than us. And that is the funny thing. They've won 17, United have won 14. So I do think nipping that little bit of complacency out the window and really, really focusing on our strength, which appears to be the transition that we have, and now the clinical nature of our forwards, I think we can overcome the obstacle, particularly against Fulham. Dale, I want to ask you very quickly before we finish up, are we going to be leaving with all three points against Fulham on Saturday? Yeah, I fancy United to continue the run of momentum and get another win, but again, it's a stress that you know people complain about the performance and that... To be honest, I've told myself now, if we can grind these results week in, week out and just pick up three points, I'm happy. Um, I'm not too critical if we can just ensure three points. I'm not going to come on the podcast after a shite performance and say what I watched was fantastic when it wasn't. Um, it's quite clear, even as Henry Winter touched on when he watches United, he's not quite seen an identity at play. Um, there's a number of factors behind that. I chose to put it down to injuries, like I alluded to shortly or a few minutes ago, that we've seen over a duration or two or three games with Martinez and key players back how good this team can be and how easy it can be on the eye. And if we had that over a longer period, this United team would be in a such stronger position in the league and we wouldn't be looking over our shoulder and trying to cram back into the top four. So... Yeah, look, I think we will pick up three points the weekend. Fulham are also without a star player in Paulinia. So that could be an advantage to us. And they're coming to Old Trafford and 
not great run of form. I think they're currently 12th or 13th in the Premier League. So, yeah, we should be getting three points the weekend, and I fancy us to do so. As for a scoreline prediction, I'll give you a 2 0 United win. Brian, are you going along with 2 0? Yeah, exactly what I had in my head myself. Um, Rasmus Hoyland score both of them because he scores goals and that's what he does well as Paul Scholes said United are about the only team who can win 5-0 and be battered from pillar to post in doing it it has been an absolute pleasure spending this evening with Mr Henry Winter with Mr Dale O'Donnell and Mr Brian Murphy if you want to get in touch with me you can do so on Twitter or as Dale continues to refer to X at SeanConley85 and Brian where can they get you? you can find me on Twitter on at DateDrippingRed and if you don't subscribe to the podcast I'm going to look in your letterbox and make the sound of a ghost at night. Oh my God. Dale, what about you, my man? Find me on X at O'Donnell Dale. And of course, follow Stretty News on all social media platforms. Elon Musk loves you, Dale O'Donnell. Sports Social Podcast Network.